Welcome to How to Win the Lottery Season 3 Internet Module Author Interview. We have the author of Jello Girls Anesthetica, Allie Robottom. Hello, Allie. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. I do want to not confront you. I said I said to Bob before that I don't want to confront you, but I went to your reading <laughs> in New York, which was a lot of fun, but I went a little bit crazy because when I got, I got there way too early because I had to drive in from New Jersey and you played on loop Lana Del Rey's Young and Beautiful like 10 times in a row. And I love that song. And I, it's a perfect, it's a perfect song choice for the book. But I was like, okay, cool. It's, it's playing again. All right, cool. And then like play three and then play four <laughs> and then five. And I'm like, oh no, I'm going crazy. <laughs> so I, I admire you and respect you for that decision. And I also want to let you know that you drove me a little bit crazy that night, but it was a good kind of crazy. Well, thanks. Yeah, uh, I had that vision. It was actually my husband, the writer, John Lindsay's idea to play a song over and over and over again at the beginning to sort of like solidify a vibe. Mm-hmm. But um, as you said, we did realize at a certain point that it was getting hyper redundant and had to had to move on. <laughs> yeah, we I think you went to like another Lana song and I'm like, oh, is this one gonna loop? And then it was just like it became like a normal playlist. But there was something I was like, even before I'd read the book, I'm like, okay, this feels like I get what the vibe of the book is and this song nails it and man, but it was it was a it was kind of a mood to walk into just to that on loop. So so well done to you and to John. But also like like hyper redundancy is like a feature of postmodern fiction, right? So there's it's definitely like uh, curating and and aesthetic reaction. So yeah, it's it's all it's all part of a, a a whole body of work, I think. Thank you for the deep read. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even there. I'm just you know I'm um I was I was I think I was sick and I couldn't make it. But yeah. I also do, I, I want to thank you for like, because that was the, I met Darcy in person that night. Like we had, we interviewed Darcy for this podcast. And so she was wonderful to talk to. And like, I got to meet her in person. We talked for a while that night, but I also, I don't know if you're going to remember this. I'm sure that whole night was a blur for you, but like you and I had a, a very brief, awkward because of me interaction where like, I looked up and you were like, just right, right in front of me. And I was like holding your book. And I was like, oh, hi. And you're like, hi. And then I was like holding the book. You're like, do you want me to sign? I'm like, no, no, no. I was just like, congratulations. I'm like, I'm sure you want to be in a million places. But like, we spoke very, like, I didn't want to borrow your time because I knew you had a million places to go. But like, I looked up and you were like directly in front of me. And I was just like, oh, no. Like, it's her night. Like, I want to say congratulations, but I also don't want to like interrupt. So uh, we had a very, very brief interaction. So again, congratulations. Thank you. And that's very kind. The night really was like, such a blur for me it was like a wedding you know how people describe like not remembering any of it that's how I feel about that night I could not tell you a single conversation I had it was just (laughs) constant blur but um I found myself very relieved that it went off without too many hitches and it was just well attended and then it was over and I was really glad to rest (laughs) yeah for sure so what's what's like the last month or so been like since the book came out um, it's been wonderful. I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I really fought for this book, um, from the very beginning. So it's been really rewarding to see more than even the press, which has been great, but it's been just really rewarding to hear from individual readers, uh, who feel seen by the book or, just like it you know it's nice Mm -hmm. to have it in people's hands finally um so i would say this past month has at times been overwhelming but has more than anything been really rewarding and validating and um is setting me up in a nice way to go write the next thing so 
That's awesome. Yeah. When you say when you say that you fought for the book, uh, can can you elaborate on what that means? Absolutely. Yeah. So I went through a lot with the book in as much as I had a different agent when I started writing it. Um, and I knew that I was probably going to look for a new agent with this book, which did end up happening. But I had <laughs> sort of a jolting um, trajectory to, to getting the book to a place where it was ready to find an agent. And then when I did take it out, there was some interest, but there were a lot of people who were just kind of lukewarm about it. And I guess I had that experience when it went out on submission to editors as well. I understand why now, um, but it was a big growth experience for me. I don't think that I had ever, and I mean this in sort of a, well, how do I say this? I just had never really experienced that level of rejection with my work. (laughs) (laughs) I had had um, kind of a charmed uh, experience selling Jello Girls and even meeting my agent for that book. And prior to that, I had had you know, just a very positive experience in grad school with my writing as, you know, it was a very supportive environment and I always had great workshops. So yeah. um, this was the first time where I was like, oh, okay, so like this could be bad or I could just really like stick with it and try to make it good and believe in it and fight for it. And then I did and it turned out to be, you know, a really rewarding experience. Ultimately, it sort of broke me down. And then I built myself back up again. Do do you think some of the maybe pushback or whatever you were getting or the rejection is the result of, um, like, I think probably a lot of people in positions of of power or whatever in in publishing um, live a life that that seems kind of detached from this sort of content, which is much more like a lot of the stuff that we've covered during this module has been, um, like not certainly not self-published, but like I, I would imagine, uh, like it's mostly indie presses and people publishing within within like the context of like younger people who are familiar with with all of the ins and outs of the internet and stuff like that. But I can't imagine like sending a book off to an agent or sending a book off to to like FSG or something and being like, listen, first you have to know the entire context of of what Instagram modeling is and and all of this other stuff. Right. And they're like, I never go online. The internet is my enemy <laughs> and I avoid it at all costs. I would rather publish another book about like three generations of people living in the 1800s. I don't know. It's like, it's just a very different, I think, vibe in publishing a lot of the time, um, for better, or for worse. And so, yes, I think you nailed it. I think that there's a resistance not just to internet content, but I think mm-hmm. to morally ambiguous content in general, and then also to sort of lowbrow, I'm putting quotation marks around that, but yeah. subject matter that is considered lowbrow, um, no matter how it's being written about. Like I wanted to take lowbrow content and write about it in a highly literary way. I thought that would be fresh and and fun. And I definitely wanted to take that approach to plastic surgery, which even more so than the internet stuff, I think was a sticking point for a lot of people who passed on this book. But yes, I think you nailed it. I think there is resistance to um, the internet and possibly because it's such a competitor with books. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that there's, you know, this whole season that we've been doing, this is we're, we're sort of recording out of order. Like, this is the last book that we're covering, but it's coming out this week, and we got a couple more. So we're in the middle of, like, this seven-month-long 
internet module. And I feel like what's the most exciting thing about not all of the books, so we've read some older ones, but especially the newer ones, the ones that have come out in the last couple of years, like including your book, is that it feels very timely and it feels of the moment. And I, I think, you know, what, what Bob was saying, like they're, they're, I think the word that we've been using this season is like, a, it requires like a little bit of like a scaffolding, like you need to have some kind of a kind of prerequisite knowledge. But I think what works about yours is that like, as long as you know, like Instagram is a thing and people can make money by being an Instagram model or whatever, and that there are certain societal expectations, your book kind of like guides the reader through the rest. Like you don't need to have like a deep expertise. Bob looks so confused. I don't even know the question I'm asking. But I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is like, how did you try to balance people knowing the landscape really well and people who didn't know that this was even like a job or a thing that you could do? You know, what became of utmost importance to me with this book, and I think it works, is just to focus on what I see as the deep emotional underpinnings, not just of the characters' lives, but of the world. So like, yes, it's an internet novel or could be called an internet novel. And it is about Instagram in some ways, but beyond that, it's really about wanting to be loved, wanting to be seen, wanting to be validated. Mm -hmm. And that to me just seems so timeless that like, yeah, even if you're not on Instagram, surely you can understand that impulse. Um, But also, I knew who I wanted this book to be for. I mean, myself, it's a book that I would want to read. But also, I was specifically interested in in reaching out to younger readers or like sure. my contemporaries. And pretty much everyone in that category knows what Instagram and the internet is. <laughs> like definitely right. what the internet is, but what Instagram is. So I was focusing on them. And like, I think that the book is consumable by, you know, older generations as well or people who are not on social media. But I was mostly focusing on people who had like basically my level of literacy when it comes to Instagram. Sure, that makes sense. I, th- I mean, I think there is a degree of timelessness to it, too, because it's like even when we're talking about like the the older people who are like, I'm never online, I never do anything. It's like, have you not heard of Pamela Anderson or Anna Nicole <laughs> Smith or any any number of people whose lives have been changed in very similar ways as, as is written in this book? Like, I, I don't think that... Um, I mean, like one thing that literature does is, I mean, good literature is like it accesses universal emotions through specificity, right? So like something like this does transcend generations. You just have to like not be a wildly lazy reader to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Thank you for saying that. I um, It does feel to me like a timeless story. Like, And I wanted it to be that way. It's sort of like girl comes to Hollywood with big dreams of making mm-hmm. it on a screen and the screen used to be very different kind of screen than it is today. But like ultimately same wants, same fundamental um, impulses and like woundings in a lot of ways. So it felt like a classic story, just sort of a, a more contemporary spin on it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not unlike the Jacqueline Susan novels, the like Valley of the Dolls, and 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 that yep. stuff. Um, uh, and that like, unfortunately, like those novels. Valley of the Dolls is a pretty good novel, I think. And those novels have been like dismissed as, uh, like kind of trash. I think because people have a 
negative they push back against these narratives that that involve uh like drugs and women and exploitation and sex and things like that because they think of them as being what you were saying before as as like quote unquote low brow um which like i think maybe like a primary aesthetic of what's happening now or even from from post modernism is is like the tension between low and highbrow stuff so again it's like i i really feel like people who are not keyed into that are are either lazy readers or just not um yeah they're just not doing the work i don't know yeah i think too like sort of as an extension of what you were just saying which i think is really true um I know that a lot of writers don't feel this way and I totally honor that. But for me, I did feel like I want to write a book that can in some ways compete with everything else people are consuming. And a lot of what people are consuming is like reality television or, Mm -hmm. you know, Instagram itself. And like in order to do that, it felt really important to me to take on that high low um conversation and balance so that leaves me a little stuck with my you know what I write next because I don't think that I can just sort of keep going on that on that track exactly so I'm like oh how do I how do I make another interesting book that's not about the internet or Instagram culture but like yeah it just felt when I started this book like something I really wanted to to converse with and engage with that high-low balance. Well, I think what also worked, especially for us, like we just did our episode, you know, the discussion about the book, which will come out this Thursday, and then your, this interview will come out the, the week after. But I think like what really kind of resonated was like the mother-daughter relationship and the sort of the, the friends who have drifted apart through no fault of their own relationship and like beyond the internet, beyond plastic surgery, like it's a human story that works. So I think putting words in Bob's mouth, I think what we both <laughs> enjoyed the most about this was that it, the the dynamics between Anna and Leah or her mom like both felt very real and I think whatever angle you decide to take with again this is this is a hallmark of the show where I like I ramp up on the big <laughs> thing I think I think I'm landing on a question and it just turns out to be a compliment um, but yeah I think like what the human story of this I think works better and like people scared of it being you know lowbrow Instagram or plastic surgery or whatever is, are missing the bigger picture here yeah thank you I'll take a compliment any day. <laughs> um, I'll also say that I, I teach uh, I teach young people literature. Uh, I'm a high school teacher. It, we have we have like a canon that we're supposed to teach, but like what, something that's very important to me is like trying to get kids to read living authors so that they know that literature is something that's actually still going on. And I'm faced with this weird dilemma where it's like I know that these kids would love this book, <laughs> but like if I suggested this book to them their parents would be very, very mad at me, I think. Do you, like, what do you, what do you think about that? What do you think about young people reading, reading this? Do you think it's like, uh, are you, are you, are you throwing an R rating on it? Or do you think rating systems for that sort of thing are stupid? Uh, I, I mean, I'm tend to think of ratings as a little reductive, um, in a, just sure. sort of a general sense. I, I would say high school seems appropriate to me. I'm sure that there's somebody listening out there who's waiting to cancel me for that. <laughs> no, I think they're probably already living this life. Like it's just right. the fact that like maybe their parents want to turn a blind eye. Like, oh no, this isn't what my kids into. It's like, yeah, they are. You're just not talking to them. Well, it's not even that. It's that there's there's this weird tension where it's like kids, and this is you know, I'll, <laughs> this I I don't want to talk too much about myself or get get away from the book, but it's like kids, even when kids have things that are 
Like they might be doing whatever in their own personal life. Like they expect school to be set at a higher not a higher standard because I don't think it's a higher standard, but it's like a, a more conservative standard. So like a kid will be offended by a teacher saying something when they won't be offended by something that their friend says, which makes total sense, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I don't know. It's weird. Um, yeah. Away from, let, let's, let's get okay. away from you. Question about, about the book itself, <laughs> why you're here to talk to us. So I think toward the end, you know, when there's like the, the climax of the book, and this is also going to, you know, we assume that people who are listening to this have already read the book. So if you have not yet, go read the book because it's great. Uh, but spoilers abound. But at the end, it feels like there is like this whole other novel that could sort of exist where like after Noreen passes away and then she, like there's the sort of the 15 the year gap between mm-hmm. the past timeline and the present timeline. Like it feels like there's a whole other story there that like, you could tell like either it's like a much longer novel or a separate novel or anything like that. Like was there, when you were writing this, did you ever have an intention to like make this a much longer story or a different story? Or do you always know that like, like how did that come about? Like how'd you choose what timeline or what, what time frame to cover or to sort of pass by? That is a great question. Um, well, I, when I first started writing uh, the novel, I, played around with a couple different plots and it took me a while to land on this one. Um, So yes, I definitely experimented with different stories here. I think ultimately what I realized the book was truly about in sort of a deep emotional way. And for me, it felt important to write for this reason. It's, it's really about the transition from girlhood to womanhood and what happens when right as you are making that transition, something happens to arrest your development and sort of freeze you in time. And for me, I think, you know, when I look at Anna attempting to move from the 19 year old timeline forward, you know, not to spoil anything, but she is, um, you know, just lived through some really traumatic events and that has the effect of, very much freezing her in time. Mm-hmm. So her efforts as a 35-year-old are to unfreeze <laughs> and move forward and to become and to step into womanhood in a way that she was not able to do um, for traumatic reasons in her 19-year-old timeline. Because that's what the story is and that's what the conflict is to me, having it told in those two timelines and leaving, you know, leaving a quite a big gap between them felt right. But I keep pitching this to people, but if anyone wants to make it into a TV series, I could absolutely see Mm. the book being the first season and then the second season addressing that interstitial time period between the 19 and 35 year old age periods. And then like, you know, season three could just be like, what happens when she goes out into the world with her new aesthetica face? Does it fix anything, et cetera? Because I think like sort of the way that the the past timeline sets it up is that like things go so poor, not poorly for her, but like so many terrible things happen to her in such a short amount of time that you're like, oh, maybe she's going to break free of this life. But then you remember, no, like she's had all this work done, like her future self, the 35 or whatever year old self is like, it, it, it sets it up as like, maybe she can escape this life. You're like, no, that's not the ending that's destined for her. So I do like the sort of three season arc mm-hmm. that you have here. Did you... One thing that we sometimes we, we talked about this sort of briefly in our episode, but we talk about, you know, adapting this to film or TV. Did you if you saw this adapted, is there someone you would see playing Anna? Oh, my gosh. I've been asked this question so many times recently, um, which I adore. OK, I will say I have one person in mind um, and that person is Chloe Cherry, who 
uh, was in Euphoria recently. Oh, okay, okay. Love that show. It could be very possible that ultimately I have zero control over this. And I'm also continually in having talks with people in the film industry and whatnot that like I am so out of the loop when it comes to who's who in Hollywood and (laughs) who's like an up and comer and who's been in what and all that stuff. So, but Chloe is the one I keep coming back to. Yeah, I mean, you referenced Euphoria. That's like the the hip, young, it person show, right? And she's got a very distinct look. Like, you don't watch Euphoria, right? I, I don't watch Euphoria. No, Chloe Cherry is like a very, like, in a, in a show filled with, like, amazing young talent. Like, there's, like, mm-hmm. if Chloe Cherry does not blow up in a way by starring in Aesthetic of the TV series coming <laughs> soon to Netflix, <laughs> you know, something went wrong. Because she, cause she's got the talent and the look, and, like, she, I think that's a great pick. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. If you're out there, Chloe, call me. Yeah, she emails in every episode. She's definitely listening to this. Yeah, so something weird that we do uh, occasionally is because we can be used as an official source. Um, we ask people uh, if they want anything lied about on their Wikipedia page. So if you have any cool, if you want us to tell any lies that we can submit ourselves as an official source for your Wikipedia page, feel free. Oh my gosh, what a question. I mean, for a while, <laughs> I actually think this is still the case, like... It's like a fun lie, but under my education, it says I went to the gelatin school of individualized study rather than like... I saw that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was wondering if you knew about that because obviously the whole connection to Jello, and I was like, is this is this a specific intentional joke choice or is it someone just like confusing... Because how's it pronounced? Gallatin? Yeah, it's Gallatin. But I was just like, because I'm like, I'm a dumb person. I'm like, maybe there actually, maybe there's a gelatin school that gelatin that your family kind of like funded, and that obviously that's where you would go because like you pay for the school. And then like I'm like, oh wait, that's not because when you Google it, just do you mean gelatin? And like, oh, I'm just being dumb. So I I do love that that exists, and I, I love even more that you know about it and that you like it. Someone pointed it out to me recently. Yes, I think it's charming. Um, I'm not sure who. Like, does anyone know who's responsible for their Wikipedia pages? I don't know who made mine. Um, I don't know if you can track. I don't know if there's any way to track them down. And I don't, I think, I think it's against Wikipedia's terms and conditions. Like, I don't think you are allowed to edit your page for any, any reason. And I don't know why. Like, I don't know, like your husband maybe could. I don't know. But like, I mean, the reasons why not are obvious. I know, but still, but there's still people like editing it. But it feels Uh weird that she can't go in there and be like, that's not how the school is spelled. Yeah. Um, I tried to make my husband a Wikipedia page actually for Christmas last year. I thought it would be a nice <laughs> gift. Um, they didn't, but they let didn't let me. And I got oh. a couple like little admins on Wikipedia kept messaging me and being like, this is nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, n- not for nothing. I personally am a great admirer of Body High. So uh, just to put that out there. Me too. Fan. It's my favorite novel. The job that I have, my first task that my boss ever gave me was to write his wikipedia page he's like i should have one I mean, he, he's right he should have one but i thought i did this really good job and then ever since then it's been flagged with like this is biased this is not factual enough. i'm like i sort of i've cited so many sources yeah you shouldn't have written about how large his penis is so many times <laughs> that's that that's what it is but i felt bad because i was just like i i, I want to do a good job and wikipedia was like you did not do a good enough it's still up there but like there's like that big like yellow banner at the top just like this seems to be not third party verified. I'm just like, oh man. So uh, I feel for your plight, and I'm, I apologize <laughs> that you couldn't give John a, a Wikipedia page for Christmas. Maybe we can give John a Wikipedia page. Maybe we can do that. We can do that. Yeah. 
I saw him at the reading. I did not talk to him, but I saw him there, so that can go on there. All right, so let's let's uh, if if you want to pass, you you if if you still want to make a lie that we'll put it on there, we can we can put we'll, a lie on his page. We're, we're happy to do it, but we can also uh, maybe try to try to uh, structure a, a Wikipedia page for John. Okay, I like the latter option. I can't think of any lies that feel important to me to have out there, so. Yeah, that's fine. One other thing that we do like to ask authors, and I did not let you know this in advance, so I apologize that I'm sort of springing this on you here, but I think based on the way that you've phrased other things that you might have an easy answer to this question, however you want to take this question, whether you want to focus on the internet or plastic surgery or modern living or interpersonal relationships, the way the podcast is structured is that we sort of theme similar books, like our first season is all about like loss and grief and coming to terms with that, and then season two is all like campus novels. And then this has been, for one extent or another, all internet module, all internet related. If you, if someone out there reads Aesthetica and loves this book and wants to read more things that you love, either books similar to this in any way that you see fit, what would you recommend if you were building a little a little module around Aesthetica? What else would you recommend that people read? Oh, I love that question. Um, well, I'm going to give an answer and I will preface it by saying that I'm not going to talk about in other internet novels, probably, um, simply because the books that I think of when I'm asked this sort of question are books by my friends and my, like my sure. favorite yeah. writers who are my friends. So, and some of them have to do with the internet, but mostly they, a lot of them have to do with girlhood. So, okay, here we go. Uh, number one. <laughs> Somewhat has to do with girlhood, uh, Body High, which we were just talking about by my husband, John Lindsay. I've heard it's your favorite novel. I mean, it's my favorite novel. I could recite some of it from memory if you'd like, but I won't actually do that. (laughs) It's a book that taught me so much about writing and sentence making and perseverance uh, and how to get readers for your books. Um, So Body High by John Lindsay best American novel that I can think of. Um, I am very fortunate to be in a writing group that is wonderful and helped me with Aesthetica very much and um, continues to help me. So uh, the books by the people in that group are among my favorites. Um, They are (laughs) Heartbroke by Chelsea Beaker, who is also the author of Godshot. Um, Both those books are absolutely gorgeous and and very near to my heart. Um, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls by T. Kira Madden, Uh, A Year Without a Name by Cyrus Simonoff, and Boys of Alabama by Genevieve Hudson. Um, And then I'd also like to list uh, A Cigarette Lit Backwards by Taya Hasik-Vahovic. That book came out in September. It's a follow-up to her first novel, Life of the Party, which is absolutely incredible also they're both beautiful novels um so that's my little list <laughs> that's a great i mean i i uh uh i'm not familiar with really any of those and, and so so that's given me uh you know books to add to my pile ooh enjoy i i um i'm almost jealous of you getting to experience <laughs> the first. isn't that the, isn't that the best thing in the world when you're just like <laughs> I also like I, I have this thing where um, like if people ask me for a recommendation for something, sometimes I hold back on giving them something that I really love because I'm afraid like if mm-hmm. they if they don't love it, I will be hurt by that thing, by them not loving it as deeply as I do. 
So I don't know. It's a it's a mixed bag, I guess. Well, we ran into that this season with Live Blog, where you're like, I love this book, but like it's it's a difficult recommend because it's a dense thing yeah, yeah. and it's it's hard. The recommendation game is a challenging one mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure. I for love. Sure. But yeah, I love that list. And I'm, I'm, you love Live Blog, you said? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, she's she's great. We we talked to her earlier, and it's like that book was my favorite book the year that it came out. But it's also like recommending that book is is like like look, this is uh, a word that I use often, and I don't mean it as a pejorative. I mean it as a, a weird compliment. Is boring. Uh, <laughs> like I feel I think it's a boring book, but like it's a bo- it's boring in the best possible way in that it captures. Uh, like day-to-day sadness and mundanity in a way that is really like true to life and, and bruising. Um, But yeah, I I love that book. Absolutely. I know people sometimes forget that books can be performances. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're looking to capture mundanity, like sometimes you have to perform it on the page. Oh, actually I have a, it's a very maybe simple, easy to answer question, but I think you, you definitely win the award for the book that we read this season with the most emojis in the text. Um, (laughs) Was there ever a discussion about like how to implement those or whether to use those or whether that would translate to print? Because like it, it also is sort of jarring to see them like they're in context in the book, but like you're still reading a book. You're not like on Instagram. So to just see like the comments and emojis, like it's kind of like a weird, like in a cool way. But like, was there any thought given to that about like whether that would translate or just like this is part of the experience and this is I'm going to include this no matter what? Well, it was one of the earliest things that I incorporated into the text, um, like when I was finding my way into the book. It just came kind of naturally to me and it felt like, I guess I would, had done a lot of research looking at various Instagram models' comment sections and just felt really taken by the accumulation, sort of what we were just saying with the books as performance, but the accumulation of emojis and graphics. So that was very early in very early drafts of the novel and nobody ever pushed back against it. Um, my editor at Soho, Mark Doton, never said anything about them. The only thing that I was alerted to was that they wouldn't be in color in the book, which was fine. Mm. But yeah, there wasn't a lot of discussion. And I'm sort of glad there wasn't because I think I would have been like, nope, these have got to stay. <laughs> I have been listening to the audiobook, which I'm enjoying oh, yeah, that's doing. interesting. Yeah, and when she, I will say I find them tedious in the audiobook. Um, how how has it come across? Like, as you say, like heart eye emoji. Like, what is what does it actually sound like when it's when they're describing that part? It sounds like that. So it'll and because there's so many of them, you're kind of like okay, but it'll be like she'll read the entire handle, so she'll be like at cars are fun two one seven nine heart eye emoji heart eye emoji heart eye emoji. <laughs> And then there'll be like twenty of those, and that is yeah, because that forward. that like is a like when you I I said this in the, in the other episode, but I did a lot of weird research on looking at Instagram influencers and models and stuff like that when when I was reading. Yeah, Bob this really book. took one for the team and like spent a lot of time looking at Instagram, <laughs> looking models. at beautiful women. Um, but like the the comment section truly is like its own aesthetic experience, and it is like it's visual. You don't have to read it. It's just like it's it's like looking at a painting or something. You understand all the symbols, like they're hieroglyphs. They come at you over and over again. Uh, DM to collab is something that is like frequent <laughs> frequent enough that you no longer have to read it. You can just see it, and it like translates that symbolically into your brain. So it's like that's an interesting uh, aesthetic to apply to to a novel because it is like entirely entirely visual. Did you spend like hours and hours with Instagram models just looking at at different like pages and stuff like that? 
Yes, I did. Um, and I would sort of replicate, like when I was inserting comments and emojis into the text, I would look at different ones and just sort of like, you know, use them as templates. To, I would spend a lot of time on Emojipedia also. This oh, yeah. No, I, I love that. Website. I didn't even know yeah. that was a thing. Anyway, it's a great website. Um, but yes, I spent a lot of time, you know, and part of it, I feel like my research for this book was really organic in a lot of ways. And maybe that's always the case when I'm writing fiction as opposed to nonfiction. But it very much came from me just being on Instagram, obsessed with a couple different Instagram models and influencers and fitness influencers. And then it all just sort of becoming a soup that I was trying to find my way out of. And the book was the way I was trying to find my way out of it. Yeah, I'm, fa I'm fascinated with those, like, even even maybe more so than the Instagram influencers themselves, I'm fascinated with the, the communities of people who comment on them. Uh, there was, like, a very brief period, uh, maybe, when all of the Kanye, Pete Davidson stuff was going down, when I, when I would, like, look at Kanye, the comment section in Kanye's Instagram, and it would be, like, the same seven people repeating the exact same comments for every single post that he did, no matter what. Everybody just wants to be seen. And it was very, yeah, yeah it, it, was, it was very bizarre, like, the way that people interact with these, with these stars. But then, I, then thinking about them as Instagram influencers, like, especially lower-level ones, it's like there is this illusion that you can actually interact with these people and, like... I don't know. Getting at them through comments seems. I, I wonder how often anyone actually does interact, or 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 if that interaction is ever anything but transactional. Well, I know that like the Instagram algorithm is benefited by interaction. Like there is value oh. in those people. Mm -hmm. So it, it the whole system is like kind of broken, or if not broken, just like working perfectly, maybe. Or working perfectly. It's just it's a weird it's a weird place to be. It's definitely a weird place to be. It's interesting that like, I think there is the illusion that these, you know, maybe lower level Instagram influencers will respond and will see your message. But I think there's also simultaneously an expectation that they won't or that they're blank slates. I mean, I sometimes feel like this too in my like small role on Instagram where it's like, do you think that I'm not going to see that comment or do you... Right want me to see it or is it a little bit of both because it kind of seems like it's a little bit of both do you mean like like mean comments or comments like like you know like the yeah grosser stuff yes i i think i mean mean comments i think are almost a hundred percent like cries for attention and mm -hmm. um but even when people are like carrying on little conversations in the comment section so like one person will pop on and like tag another person and be like this doesn't really happen to me, but I mean, on an influencer models or an uh, Instagram models feed, like, you know, at my best friend, she changed her hair color. This would look good on you. And then the friend responds like, oh, I don't know. I think that would make me look washed out. You know, it's like a whole little world takes place in the comment sections that really have nothing to do with the model herself. Well, I, I think I think that's a thing about the internet. Like, you know, we're in a bunch of different text threads with like the same people, but like slight variations on the groups and like a message gets sent to a threads. Like there's no reason for this to be like in a public discourse or a semi-public discourse. <laughs> but people just don't know how to like, I think there's like a lack of like, not, not like poor behavior, just like a lack of understanding. Like, oh, other people don't need to see this conversation. It's just a very weird way that we've all, I guess, because if you're in, if you're in a feed of a thousand comments, like, oh, they're never gonna see this, but like they probably will. 
<laughs> like very might. Well, might, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I've you know, I live in a world of like you know, thirty-seven followers that I all that I, <laughs> that I know mostly personally. So any comments on my thing are like you know very personal and specific. So that world is like wildly interesting and and uh, I don't know very. Uh, intimidating to me because i can't imagine having that amount of attention thrust on me i don't know it seems very scary as part of the research for this book i this is seems connected i'm not sure but i interviewed an instagram model named paige woolen and i was particularly interested in her because she runs a size she has a you know very robust instagram account with a couple hundred thousand followers and she um but she also has this side account called Dudes in the DM where she will post uh, screenshots of DMs that she mm-hmm. gets from yeah. men mostly. Or like, you know, if you want to submit a screenshot of a DM that you got, she'll post that as well. Um, and they are truly horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's, I guess it feels predicated in some way on the expectation that she'll never see it. So they're just like depositing hate into what they think is her message request folder, but she sees it and posts it a lot of the time. And it's, to me, it was one of the things that helped me really realize the, just the sheer amount of hate that particularly, it seems to me like particularly women and women who choose to self-objectify in such a way on Instagram are subject to. Um, And that was, I don't know. I mention it only because it was illuminating. And if you, anyone listening wants to see what I mean, go to dudes in the DM and you'll see what I mean. I will. Yeah. I'll, I'll look at it for sure and be prepared to be horrified. I think something, something that happens in the novel, like there is a lot of misogyny in the novel, like mostly from Jake and it is uh, done in a very, I think something that we talked about that horrified me was Jake's ability to consistently be like, how's your mom? Like, what's going on with your mom? Tell me what's going on with your mom. And then, like, move on before Anna could even answer or have an emotional reaction to that because he was just, like, checking off a box to show, like, hey, look, I'm a, I'm a good dude. I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know that I care about these things. So it's like I think that that kind of subtle misogyny um, – I don't even know that I, I maybe subtle is not even the word for that. Maybe that's just it's like, like institutionalized almost. Yeah, maybe that's just like obvious out there misogyny. But like, yeah, Jake is a a villain that a lot of guys don't realize that they're that villain. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. He came together really quickly for me in the writing of the book. Like he was almost fully formed from the jump, and like. The one thing that really helped me understand him and understand what it was I was writing was I was listening to a lot of podcasts about Epstein and Weinstein Mm -hmm. and like um, that sort of took me into this rabbit hole of podcasts that are talking about coercive control and how these abuses that are less sort of clear cut take place and what kind of tactics are used and sort of the various manipulations, all of which felt very, I don't want to say familiar to me. Once I started to listen to them, I was like, oh yeah, like I know people like that, but he's a character that is very much built on some of those classic coercive control tactics, like, you know, showing care at the same time you undercut someone or, you know, framing something as someone's choice when it's, totally under your or it's totally been 
by your pressurizer, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, he felt immediately familiar. To, I mean, you, you know, I am a, a straight white cis dude with all the privileges in the world. And that, and, and that that character felt immediately familiar to me, even like, like, I guess Weinstein and Epstein are like the huge, large scale version of that. But, he, you know, I recognize that stuff from like guys I went to high school with who mm-hmm. are just like. Uh, charming and manipulative, but would you, you could like recognize that they were were being manipulative, manipulative in a uh, manipulative in a very like specific, strange way uh, that like is also like rewarding because he's it's he is like in some ways providing a service, and that's what allows him to be so uh, like brutal and and have his like abuse sort of hidden by the, the the various curtains of of uh whatever he's providing for uh anna mm-hmm. it's all bad news it's all bad news. i mean because <laughs> it's, it's the it's the hyper competitive like oh if you don't want this like there's a million other girls who look exactly like you if not better who will like take your place in a heartbeat so it's just a, the whole system is terrible all systems are terrible <laughs> and yet we must live within them somehow and yet we must <laughs> live within them yeah i just had an anarchist awakening right now yeah. <laughs> Um, you uh, uh, do I have this right? That you have a PhD in literature? Is that correct? Yes, literature and creative writing. Literature and creative writing. I was going to ask what your dissertation was on. My dissertation was two parts. Part of it was Jello Girls, so it was a creative. Oh, okay. Cool. And then there's a critical component that I wrote. I guess <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> writing it. I know I've seen it recently, uh, and it's just like basically. The concept was very strange, but it was like uh, critiquing yourself. So there's like a whole maybe like 50 to 70 page paper of like lit crit on Aesthetica that I wrote. Oh, wow. That's 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 fascinating. We're not on Aesthetica, on Jello Girls, sorry. On Jello Girls, right. But is is that like um, – so, so you're acting as a critic that you're right, but you're like – writing critically about your own work? Yes, and just sort of exploring some of the theoretical underpinnings of the work and its influences. But I remember feeling like pretty out of it while I was writing that, so I'm not sure how good it is, but I saw it. Did you enjoy that or was that just, was that, was that weird? Like, was that, was that a valuable experience in any way or is that just like a, this is a strange thing that I wish I didn't have to do? I think it was the latter. Um, But I, I think Two, I had gotten to a point where, and I did really enjoy my PhD program. I, it felt like a good opportunity to just get paid to write for a couple years. Um, but there was such a heavy literature component to it that I was so burned out on writing mm-hmm. critically at that point that the last thing I wanted to do was sort of turn that on myself, <laughs> but I did, um, like thinking about it now, some of the critical elements of that dissertation did wind up in the finished book itself. When I presented Jello Girls as my dissertation at the University of Houston, um, it was structured differently than it is now. And part of the restructuring process that it went through after I graduated and as I was preparing to get an agent and stuff like that was um, to add more of that like very overt criticism in. So some of the like, for people who have read it, like there's a lot of history of Jell-O and there's a lot of feminist theory in the book. And that was stuff that 
I ended up adding in based off of the critical component, which I'm only just remembering. So I take back what I said about it not being useful. It was useful. <laughs> I mean, I was just going to suggest that you throw it in there as a forward to future editions, <laughs> but uh, who knows if you're, if you're not a fan of it, then. Maybe I'll have to go back and read it. I mean, like most things that I discover in my trove of loose physical paper, like I've since <laughs> lost the computer that I wrote Jello Girls on. It was stolen. Um, so all that kind of remains is like physical pages, but I'll, I'll go back and take a look. Maybe it's great. Maybe it's brilliant. So you're telling me someone out there has, has a computer with like the, like the original copy of that book on it. <laughs> yeah. Plus my childhood home videos and probably oh. some nudes. So oh, that's, that's very... less fun. I was I was I was gonna try. Yeah, that's not fun. But Never that mind. is bringing it back to the beginning. That's very Lana Del Rey of you because she's had like two laptops <laughs> stolen. So congrat you you are in that Lana club, I guess. Oh my gosh! Thank you. Highest compliment. <laughs> and actually, speaking of that, so there is a very. Uh, maybe even a more the most difficult question that we've asked you so far today but for each of these episodes both the discussion and then this interview we're, we'll have like little uh, exit music that would just you know at the at the end of it all just you know outro music do you have a choice the song choices that you would like us to play it could be young and beautiful doesn't have to be but do you have uh, one song for both or two different songs anything that you want to have take the listener out after these episodes oh, i love this question um yes i would love for one of them to be young and beautiful and cool. um the other Lana song that I love that feels very aesthetic to me is that song "White White Dress." Mm, yeah. So, those are my picks. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Lana album? Yeah, I think it might be Norman Fucking Rockwell. That's a great one. Bob, do you know anything about Lana? Or yeah, no, I'm a fan. Oh, you are. Yeah, okay. I'm a I'm a I'm a uh, uh, born to die guy, but I also um, like you know sometimes I think that. I you know you spend a lot of time with one album and then you spend less time with the next ones that come out so the the oldest one to you well, that's also great still feels the most like familiar but yeah I like Lana a lot did you listen to her new song I didn't I didn't know that she had a new song the song came out Ali did you hear the new song or no I'm saving it oh for what or for when for solitude <laughs> <laughs> Here, this is the title of the song, Bob. I want I want to get your take on this because this is new to you. Just the, the song title. Is called, Don't play it though. Did you know that there's a tunnel under Ocean Boulevard? I love it. Cool. Because I well that that also like yeah I mean there's a whole conspiracy theory world and that fits in with her chemtrails over the country club. But the conspiracy theory world of like that everything's made up of subterranean tunnels and things of that nature, which fits in <laughs> with her sort of uh, uh, paranoid Americana aesthetic. I'd like to yeah. get it on. Um as a record like on vinyl that's my hope for that song. i have a couple of those record a couple of her records on vinyl not all of them but yeah she's a she she's one of those artists that really feels like you can the vinyl enhances the experience maybe because she has such a retro aesthetic maybe yeah i think so all right well i don't i i'm i think i'm tapped out yeah i think i am too is there anything else that you want listeners or readers or anything to know about this book or jello girls or yourself or body high i guess you could plug that again if you want but anything <laughs> else you want to say before we say goodbye um i don't think so i mean give us a chance see what you think that's what i want Listen. Oh, actually, here, here, here's, I don't know, I don't know if they're, I don't know if you see them as like complimentary pieces or related pieces or not, but if someone has not read either of your books and they want to read both, is there one that you would recommend they read before the other or, or either order works? Oh, that's an interesting question. It's kind of impossible to, to say. I mean, 
Jello Girls was my first book and I wrote it, I think more so than Aesthetica, simply because I'm in it with Aesthetica now, but there are things about Jello Girls that I'm like, oh, I wish I could go back and do that a little differently. Hmm. You know, I mean, I was in my 20s when I was writing it and I think for that reason, like it's kind of an enduring testament to a time in my life and because it's the first book, I guess, maybe start with that one. But it also depends on like, if you like nonfiction and you like memoir, start with Jello Girls. And if you're more of a literary fiction type of person, start with Aesthetica. Well, here's a recommendation. You could pull a Lana and do a Jello Girls, the Paradise Edition, and then revamp <laughs> it however you want to do it. <laughs> that so it exists as, as yeah. itself. So it's Born to Die, which is Jello Girls, and you got Born to Die, the Paradise Edition, and just like this is the new Jello Girls. That sounds amazing. I, don't know, I love it. I don't know if that have have people ever remixed their own books? I was just thinking of the poet Rachel Rabbit White, who I think is also a big Lana fan, and did actually uh, put out a Paradise Edition of her book, Born Carnival. Oh wait, who awesome. was the, who was the poet who read at your reading? Was that her? Christine Brichet? No, that wasn't her. Because her poems were amazing. Like I liked, all, I liked all everybody who read, but like her poems were really, really good. And I, did, I wasn't familiar with her before the reading, so I guess thank you for exposing me to her. Yeah, that's Christine Brichet. She's um, a dear friend of mine, and also an amazing visual artist, a filmmaker, and a poet. So uh, definitely check out all of her work. Oh wait, I have another. Okay, I will for sure. <laughs> but I have another question. I, I, keep, I keep like thinking about the question. So. At your reading, you had the pay what you can, pay what you want Botox station. Yeah, was that your idea? How did that come together? Like, because that's because I was I was sending the flyer that you were posting on Instagram and Twitter around to some friends. Like, this is what I'm going to tonight, and like without a doubt, almost everyone's first thing was like, pay what you want Botox. Okay, that's that's <laughs> interesting. Um, so how what I guess just what question mark? <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that. I was brainstorming the party for a long time, and I'm pretty sure that that was my friend's idea, um, Goots Guterman, who is one half of the Drunken Canal. Um, I'm pretty sure that was her idea initially, and then it stuck with me. So when I like really got into party planning some months down the road, I was like, how do I make this happen? And um, I was very fortunate to find... Uh, an injector under the handle at NYC injector who um, was willing to work with me and like find a way that to make it like financially possible to get a couple like 30 people Botox in the course wow. of a night. So we did. And I like, you know, I had a couple moments of extreme reservation. Like I didn't want, I didn't want it to seem like I was being blase about Botox, especially for younger party goers. I, I'm pretty plastic surgery neutral, but you know, once you start with that kind of thing, it can, it can open a lot of doors that aren't necessarily the best ones. So I just wanted to be mindful of that. And I, I had it as pay what you can just so that at least in a sort of representational way, there was a, a, a tangible cost to the to the procedure. Um, a lot of people didn't pay what they could though. So I'm not sure if that really panned out. <laughs> well, cause like to, to me as an outsider, it like, it, it felt very on brand for the type of book that I assumed the book would be, but it's also like, Oh, maybe this is just normal. Like maybe this is like, so like, I'm like, I don't know if I know anything about this world. And so like, it was this, it sort of set the, set the pace and set the tone for the aesthetic experience. So I think it was a very good idea 
whether it was yours or goods or some combination. I think it was fascinating. Thank I'll you. also say I have a friend who gets Botox for migraines. So if I had known about this, I would have sent her along and to get to get a free uh, or to pay what she can to to do the Botox yeah. migraine thing. She wouldn't have been the only one. I think there was another person who was getting Botox for TMJ and migraine. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not Botox all bad. bad. <laughs> yeah, Botox gets a bad rap, but it's <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of a lot of good that comes from it. I don't know. Oh, we also do want to give, and we'll let you go after this, I want to give one other former guest of this podcast a shout out because we went to his reading in the same space, but Bud Smith had his reading for Teenager in the same space. I think maybe, do you know Bud? You, you know Bud? Yes, I know Bud. Bud's the best. I love Bud and I love Teenager. Great book. I've only been to two readings in my life or two like, you know, <laughs> book launch parties ever and they've both been in the same exact location. Like you were in the... the your, your room was a little bit nicer. No offense to Bud, but I, you're, you're <laughs> a bigger space. But I was just like, oh, I guess every reading in New York is here because this is where I just keep winding up. So it was just like a weird kind of like deja vu. I guess I just keep winding up here. So shout out to Bud. Both great readings. Though. I love both those books too. So Yeah, shout out to Georgia Room also because like I was really struggling to find a venue for that party and hadn't gone to Bud. So I wasn't like thinking of it. I think I was in LA for Bud's launch. Um but yeah, then somebody mentioned it and it was like, oh, Bud Smith had his reading there. And it was like, done. I mean, if Bud picked Georgia Room, then. then it's a very cool space. And it, it sort of fits both the aesthetics of both books, too. So well done. And he, he's, he is also the guy that recommended Body High to me in the first place. So there's a connection there as well. Oh, what a great guy. Yeah. What, a, what a great guy. Thank you so much, Ali, for joining us and for writing Aesthetica and Jello Girls and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we really love the book. Oh, <laughs> my pleasure. Business conference.